Now please stand and turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel 6. Now we are going over 1 Samuel 6, verses 1 through chapter 7, verse 2 again. However, I will be focusing especially upon the event that happens in verse 13. So as, uh, as we read through these things, I would ask you to have focus upon verse 13, especially in the event that happened there. So, starting in verse 1 of chapter 6. The ark of Yahweh was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of Yahweh? Tell us what we shall do, where, rather, with what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it away empty, but by all means return uh, him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and all your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land, and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden? Why should you uh, kavod your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he had dealt severely with them? Did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart. But take their calves away, home, away from them. And take the ark of Yahweh and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of Yahweh on the cart, and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors and the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The ark came into the field of Joshua, uh, Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and stopped there. <coughs> a great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to Yahweh. And the Levites took down the ark of Yahweh and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to Yahweh. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to Yahweh, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of Yahweh is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of Yahweh, he struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because Yahweh had struck the people with a great blow. Then the man of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before Yahweh, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up with away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiryat-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of Yahweh, 
come down and take it to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of Yahweh and brought it to the house of Amidab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of Yahweh. From the, the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after Yahweh. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Last week's afternoon sermon was on this same passage, and we focused there upon God's chosen sacrifice. God's chosen sacrifice. Uh, However, I hear there were some auditory problems, and so we'll continue. I'll repeat what we had last time uh, a little bit. The two cows which were provided by God were not prescribed to be sacrificed in the ceremonial law of God, that is, in the Pentateuch. They were not prescribed, these two cows. They were provided by God for sacrifice because God provided them here for Israel to sacrifice as a peace offering, a guilt offering. And they were acceptable to God by that fact that he produced them. He gave them to them. God provided them as a sacrifice to overcome the abundant guilt of Israel's people, priest, and land. This, of course, foreshadowed Christ and his sacrifice, as we saw. Christ was God's chosen sacrifice to to overcome the guilt of his people. And even if human sacrifice was abominable to the law of God, Christ came of his own will as God's appointed, given sacrifice. So it was not only acceptable, but the most acceptable sacrifice that could ever be. Let's examine that a bit further. Often we bring our own sacrifices of our own types to God, and we expect some type of return. What do I mean by this? I offer my own repentance to God. I offer God my hard work and my early morning Bible reading. I offer God a smile when I really want to frown, want to frown, and all these other things. Are these the sacrifices which turn the frown of God into a smile? Now, turn away his wrath. When we do not do these things, is God judging us? Is he a judge over us? Those sacrifices which we provide do not take away God's wrath. They only show us the need for the sacrifice which God provides. As we saw in the passage, 70 men were killed because they had not taken it seriously. Your sacrifices... The sacrifices that are obligated of God do nothing of themselves, brothers and sisters. The sacrifice which God provides is the only sacrifice which makes us fit before God. It is the sacrifice which God provides, Jesus Christ, which takes away our guilt. It was always the willing sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he willingly gave, which turns away, which turned away and turns away God's frown. And not anything within us or that we do. It was always Christ which brought us to heaven. That last sermon was focused upon that overwhelmingly important aspect of the passage. That God provides the sacrifices which please him. So when we sin before him, even today, When we fail our children or hate our spouse in anger or lust or covet, 
What is the acceptable sacrifice to give to God that he might smile upon us? It is not at base repentance, brothers and sisters. As necessary as repentance is, and it truly is, and it is a good thing to give to God, the acceptable and only sacrifice to make us stand before God is Jesus Christ. When we sin, we do not look to our own efforts. We close our eyes to ourselves and look to Christ, to the cross. He alone is the acceptable sacrifice given by God when you hold a grudge, when you burst out in anger, when you murder for each and every sin we face each day. He is God's appointed sacrifice provided by God for that very purpose, that we might be spotless before him. God brought the sacrifice which pleases him. In other words, what God requires, God provides. Such a perfect sacrifice cannot be augmented, made more perfect by our sacrifices. Now, understanding all of this, we turn over to an aspect of this passage which is equally important to highlight. Where the first sermon told us to look to God's provided sacrifice and not our own, This whole sermon is focused upon one overwhelmingly important aspect of this story. The three words, God came back. God came back. The Lord, Yahweh, came back. This glorious Lord, this singular fact, ought to bring us to our knees in worship. Let's examine that fact here. In general, here is a principle of life. The more glorious a thing is, the less we expect it to come back. For example, on everyday level, when a boy returns a wallet that's filled with cash, not only has he done a good thing, but the more money that was in there, the more that we marvel that he brought it back at all. The more glorious a thing, the less we expect it to come back. Why is it that we find beautiful pieces of Egyptian craftsmanship in the British Museum in London and not in Egypt? Because the more glorious the thing, the less we expect it to come back, even if Egypt calls for those things to come back, like the Rosetta Stone. And on the level of relationships, the more glorious the person who has left, the less we expect them to come back. At one time, it seemed like every country song was based upon this principle. The more glorious the person who has left, the less we expect them to come back. The context here in 1 Samuel has been at absolute pains to show us just how glorious this God is who went into captivity into Philistia, the God of Israel, Yahweh, who left Israel. 1 Samuel proclaims in bold, God is glorious. The word glory, chavod, in Hebrew is everywhere in the story of the ark. Let me explain quickly what chavod, translated glory, means. Literally, it means weightiness, like a weight which is hard or even uh, unable to be borne. It is so heavy. It's used in this way even in our own passage, something that is heavy in 1 Samuel 6. The priests say in verse 6, Why then do you make your hearts heavy? Chavod. As Egypt and Pharaoh made their hearts heavy. Chavod. Our translations say, Why should you harden your hearts? This is a good translation because but only because heavy things are immovable, like a hardened stone. And that smooths over the use of chavod, unfortunately, in the passage. 
It's used twice to describe God's heavy, chavod hand against the Philistines by his judgment plague in 1 Samuel 5 and verses 6 and 11. But overwhelmingly in Scripture, chavod is used to describe God himself. Overwhelmingly, it's used to describe God himself. Even in our passage, God is called unequivocally the glory of Israel. This is 1 Samuel 6, 5, by the Philistines, as he was described once before by an Israelite in 1 Samuel 4, 21, the glory of Israel. And so preoccupied was she, this Israelite, with the glory of Israel. She calls her child Ichavod, Ichabod, that is, where's the glory? God is glorious. He is weighty, and this is what this ark story is telling us, if it's telling us anything. That is to say, he is overwhelming. His fame is great and broad. It is deep and it is wide. To be glorious is the opposite of to be trifling. A hiker can ignore a pebble on the road. It is a trifle. But a hiker cannot ignore the mountain in front of him. He must either pass by it or be broken by it. Very well. This is what it means, chavod, to be glorious. We know what, that the more glorious a thing is, the less we expect it to come back. And now the fact remains, God, the glorious God, the one to whom glory is only truly applied, came back. The all-glorious, overwhelming, glorious God, whose glory is so all-surpassing that none can even look upon him and live, This glorious God returned to sinful Israel. Why? Why? Let's examine first some possibilities. Was it Israel? Was Israel simply too irresistible to not come back? Israel was in sin and it was in misery. We know it was not Israel. If we have been paying attention to the story in 1 Samuel, we know that Hophni and Phinehas and Eli, all were great sinners, worthy of great judgment, so much so that they died, and so did thousands, tens of thousands of Israelites. It was not Israel. That is not the argument that made God come back. There can be no argument for Israel's perceived righteousness. Next possibility we might bring up is that maybe God had nowhere else to go. This is, of course, ridiculous and something God directly speaks against in Matthew 3 when John says to the Israelites who are presuming upon their own Jewish heritage, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, presuming upon their heritage. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. No, God can make a new people and a new land. There is no forcing God in this If he so desires, he could do whatever he wants and not come back to Israel. He's not obliged to come back. The next possibility is that God loves Israel through the covenant work of Jesus Christ. Simply, God loves Israel. This is the only possible reason in this text. Israel has nothing to give. God is not obliged to come back to Israel because of Israel. It is simply because God loves Israel that he came back. Why does he love Israel? Let's consider this in our own lives. If we belong to God, even if we have done horrible things in the face of God, if we are repentant people, if we are God's people, then so great is his love that he will not leave us nor forsake us. But 
Work repentance in our hearts before we even ask. So much is his love. And we will enjoy communion with him again, just as we see here. Even if, our own, if there is only one true sheep of God existing in Israel, in the world, God, through Christ, would never forsake them. Such is his love for his elect. What I'm saying is this, that as Scripture says in 1 John 4.10, This is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And this is exactly what we see in our passage. Israel didn't seek God in Philistia. Israel was never said to repent, although they may have. It's possible, but that is not at all what's being pointed to in our passage. Israel did nothing. They had no rescue attempt for the ark. They never did anything. They had been focused on Philistia for a very good long time. They did nothing to bring back the ark of God. Israel had no merit. On the contrary, it had every demerit to its name. Israel had trifled with the glorious, weighty God, just like you and I do, and every person has done. Israel had shown no love of God, and they had shown no hatred of sin. In fact, quite the opposite. They had only ever shown love of self and love of their own power and their own choices. God may separate himself for a time, seemingly from his people, or it may even seem like a physical separation, like here in 1 Samuel 4 through 7, but his elect can never be outside of his love. God may leave us for a time to our sin to show us how loving he is, but he always returns to his elect. Nothing in all creation will separate us from the love of God. It is appropriate to read the rest of Romans 8 here. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As, is, that is, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at the lengths, even in our own passage, God went in order to come back to Israel. Philistia did not want the ark to come back to Israel at all. They had pressed him, pressed the ark, into a position where it was either chance or it was God. And there were many obstacles that they placed in front of it. How many obstacles he left over in order to return to his beloved bride is quite astounding. He did this for his bride. And let us, let us use that as a comforting truth for us. The glorious God came back to a sinful Israel. Just as the glorious God came to all of us before we repented, God comes to change his people. Here in Israel, we see that they are not completely changed. Seventy of them die because they didn't do what is right. They became over-curious and over-familiar and trifled with God just as he is ought, ought not to be. 
Again, trifling is the opposite of glory. And yet he comes first. He does not wait for Israel to repent in order to come back and change their heart that they might repent. This ought to be encouraging to us, brothers and sisters. He loved his people to change them. He did not deal with them according to their iniquities, but according to the righteousness of Christ, God's acceptable sacrifice. Sinful yet repentant brother, your salvation is not based upon your continued repentance. If you sin today and we did not have the blood of Christ, then it would be enough for God to abandon us. He cannot love anything sinful. Why did he love Israel and why does he love us? Because he loves Christ. We are sons in the Son, and he returns because the love he has for his Son is the love he has for us. He sees us through Christ. God came back. God comes back to his children. He works within them even before they, can, they work in themselves. And Israel was apparently ready to receive him in 1 Samuel 6 and 7. The faithful waited upon the Lord, and he came back. But we wait upon the Lord because he comes for us. So for those who are faithful in Israel, they waited upon the Lord. And so do we. We wait upon the Lord. We wait upon his second coming. We wait upon him to come back and to judge the world. And he's not brought because of our righteousness. We may hasten the day, as Peter says, but we do not bring it. Christ comes back and he waits that all of his children, all of the sheep might come in. Why does he come back? Again, I ask you, is it because of our repentance, because of our good works, because we have created a kingdom on ramp that we might go soon, rather soon sometime? <laughs> I hope not that, that uh, this, is, this is not the case in Scripture. I hope I, I don't lead you astray with these things. But does he come because we have changed the government to make it more like the law of God. No, the situation in Israel doesn't determine, and the situation on the earth doesn't determine when God will come back. God comes back when he desires, and he comes back, and he will not be slow. And when he comes back, it will be glorious, brothers and sisters. We ought not trifle with this holy God. He ought to be glorious in our minds. But let us also remember that when he comes back, when he works within us, it is not because we are repentant, at least at the very bottom. It's because he loves us. He changed us that we might repent. Now, I must say, as we end, I'm not denying secondary causes here. That is, your work matters. He changes our hearts that we might repent. Again, repentance is important. That is God's work within us. But that is the point. Repentance is important, but it's God's work within us. God came back that he might work repentance in us and work repentance in Israel. God is the one who is doing these works. And yes, we must do them, as we'll see in the rest of 1 Samuel. He's creating a kingdom that does repent. So let us be a repentant people, but do not depend upon your repentance but upon the actions of God. For God came back, and Christ is coming back, that we might be with him forever in Christ's righteousness, and we might rejoice with him 
in his work forevermore. Let us go to him in prayer. Lord, we thank you that not because of us you came back, but because of Christ, because of your own glory, Lord, because of your love. We thank you. We are not worthy of this grace. We are not worthy of this honor, Lord, as Israel was not worthy of you coming back to them, sinful as they were, and having done nothing. Lord, we we thank you that you have done this in all of those who are your people. Lord, we pray that you might work in more people. You might work in the people in Amarillo. Lord, that you might change their hearts as they are rebels who hate you and have run away from you. Lord, as we are all rebels and hate you and have run away from you, we depend upon the work that you do within us. Use us, we pray, Lord, your repentant people changed as we are to bring about this great work of God. Lord, we pray that you would use us as secondary causes, that the world might see your glory. Lord, that as you come back, as you work in the hearts of people, that we might glorify you, that we might be used as instruments in your hands. Lord, we thank you for the work that you did in Israel. That is, you came back. We pray, Lord, that you would work in the hearts of the people that we know, that the people who have fallen, it seems, away before us, our sons and our daughters, our sisters and brothers, even our parents, Lord, we pray that you would work in them, that you would do this, Lord, if it is your will, As you came to save Israel according to your promise, you have promised to save many. We pray, Lord, that you would come back and save these. Lord, we pray all these things knowing that you are merciful and gracious. So we pray them in faith, knowing that you do what is right. We pray we would never trifle with you as your people and glorify you as we ought. We ask all this, O Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.